Welcome to Revive Family, Parenting in the 21st Century with researcher, author, lecturer, counselor, and coach, Jeff Schott. Jeff has written Influential Parenting, a comprehensive program designed to help parents become important influencers in guiding their kids to success. He also wrote the book, Going, Going, Gone, about kids departing the faith they were raised in. You can learn more about the program and the book at revivefamily.com. In today's show, your, your alternative parenting style to boundaries and consequences is our focus. We spent time with boundaries and consequences, and you know there's a much better way. And today we're going to share that. We're going to work on it, that's for sure. You know, I think a lot of the parents out there on this radio network, of course, are wondering the biblical basis. How can you biblically say that boundaries and consequences aren't correct? Because we've been taught our whole lives growing up within the body of Christ that boundaries and consequences are biblical, and if you don't do it, you're a lousy parent. And that's what I believed, too, when I started. I really stuck to the boundaries and consequences. But as I started to do the research, and I ran into these kids after kids after kids where I saw they were struggling, they were hiding, they were fearful, they were leading dual lives because of the boundaries and consequences, I had to go back and study the Bible all over again. I had to really wrestle with what was biblical for parenting. And now I'm absolutely convinced that we're parenting out of the Old Testament and that we've missed Jesus in parenting altogether. So you're saying the boundaries and consequences, the rules and regulations, do it my way, or there's punishment, is purely Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, and it's not incorporating the love, the love your neighbor that Christ brought to us. It's not incorporating Jesus' approach to leadership, how he led, how he handled failure, how he saw people's bad decisions and mistakes. It's missing so many elements of Jesus. It's no wonder our kids are departing to faith. Because if we're using the Old Testament that clearly failed, it led to, quote-unquote, by Jesus, whitewashed tombs, which sounds a lot like the dual life I see in kids— it led to a silence of the prophets for 300 years. If we're using that system, laws and sacrifices, rules and consequences, and we're seeing kids depart to faith, we have to stop and ask, is history repeating itself? Mm -hmm. It didn't work in the Old Testament times. It doesn't appear to be working with our kids. As I think back, uh, I suppose I was a youngster, five or six years old, and some consequence was proposed if a particular behavior was not met. It was part of a discipline process, I know. But I would regularly hear, spare the rod and spoil the child. So it was presented like it was biblical. I believed it was a verse, Jonathan. I really did. In fact... Uh, but it's I, not exactly that way. No, when I wrote uh, my book... Uh, going, going on, and I was analogizing that I believe the kids are leaving the church because they don't have a good shepherd, because we're not approaching them like Jesus. I actually quoted that ver as a verse in the book, 
but couldn't find the reference. I searched for it in seven different versions of the Bible, could not find it, sent it to Nav Press. Nav Press called me back. We know it's a verse, but we can't find it. Can you please point it out to us? That's when I did a broader search and discovered it was a quote from Benjamin Franklin that I'd been misusing. There's something my... in Proverbs that's close, but that's not it. No, no, it's not even. It's it's structurally incredibly different, yes. especially if you understand the meaning of discipline, which maybe is where we should head next. Mm-hmm. Discipline, um, we've come to understand it to mean some type of consequence, some type of punishment. But... Uh, I was fortunate to encounter a young man who actually grew up as a Hasidic practicing Jew in the Hasidic quarter of Jerusalem. And he said to me one day, you guys don't understand the meaning of discipline. And he was right. We don't. I've gone back and done the biblical study. And in the time of Jesus, it actually meant training, upbringing, um, it meant teaching. It meant an order and structure also, did it not? Yes. It, it meant all of these types of things. Mm-hmm. Fixed order is one of the direct quotes. There's only one passage where it sounds like it might be a punishment, and it actually means strike in the face. Um, but that's the passage where Paul says, I buffet my own body to go in the way of the Lord. I strike myself in the face to go in the way of the Lord. In other words, wake up. (laughs) Exactly. Right, right. And we've all had to do that to ourselves at times, but we're doing it to ourselves. That's Mm -hmm. scriptural. Um, But discipline was much more positive um, than negative. And that's what we see. A positive discipline approach works so much better than a negative one. Mm -hmm. Well, certainly in Christ's style, we would see... um, what today is termed as modeling, we would see him demonstrating to his disciples how they ought to handle particular circumstances, how they should handle relationships. And is there any time whatsoever, uh, maybe when he was angry with the money changers, but was there any time when Christ was violent? There was the time um, he was in the temple. And he made his own scourge, and he went after the money changers, and he flipped over tables. And that is not sin and is actually love, if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, because the only thing that's not black or white in that passage is love is not easily angered. Um, I will say, as parents, we tend to be way too easily angered. Um, But Jesus, there you have to understand the role of a shepherd and the role of the rod and the role of the staff to understand why that was love when he's flipping over tables with his own scourge. Mm -hmm. See, the rod is used by the shepherd not to beat the sheep, but to beat the lions, the wolves, the predators that that are trying to eat the sheep. And if you look at what's going on in the temple at that point in time, there are a lot of people misleading the sheep, taking them the wrong direction away from God not towards him. So they are the predators. So he comes in, makes his own scourge, and goes after those predators, and it's totally an act of love. But then we also have to look at three other interactions with different types of people and how he handled their failures, their bad attitudes, their wrong decisions. You look at the woman at the well who is sleeping around and is not currently with her current husband, and Jesus points that out all very, very gently, all very, very positively in the context of living water that you'll never thirst again. And then 
the result of that is she goes and gets the entire town to come out and listen. Then you've got the rich young ruler who's got this issue that he loves money, doesn't love people, is likely to trample over people with his money and power. And Jesus says, you know, go sell it all and then come follow me. And it says he said it in love. And you don't see the rich young ruler going away angry and upset like our kids with consequences. You see him going away sad and reflecting on the hard decision he needs to make about his choice, his conduct. He's processing. He's being forced to wrestle. Whereas if he had been issued a harsh consequence, he'd be go away focused on that and probably learn nothing. And then you've got maybe the most glaring example. Here's a woman who's a prostitute. She's been ripped out of bed. She may be in a sheet. She may be naked. The disciples aren't prevented from seeing any of this. They're taken into the middle of it as Jesus walks in between those that are going to stone him in accordance with the law. Hey, this is the consequence that's to be issued. She will be stoned. Right? right? She's supposed to be stoned. That's the consequence. And Jesus steps in between her and those that are going to issue the consequence and prevents her from being stoned. And then just gently says, go and sin no more. After that kind of love and sacrifice and risk that he took to protect her, you want to bet she went and did it? See, Jesus handles failure so much differently than the Old Testament. And it didn't lead to whitewashed tombs. It led to 12 guys that went and changed the world because he was leading like the good shepherd. And there are two verses that just stick out to me the most if we're really looking at rules and consequences. And one's in 1 John 4. It says, perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not perfected in love. Now, granted, this isn't a passage applied to parenting. It's a passage applied to our relationship with God that we no longer need to fear punishment because we're forgiven past, present, and future sins. And the Holy Spirit's interceding for us with groans and moans that we can't even understand. So we don't need to fear punishment. And in that love and grace, we can grow, draw closer to God. We don't have to fear him. We can be in communion with him. And, and he's going to help us learn from our mistakes and move forwards in a positive way as opposed to a negative way, which was Old Testament, the sacrifice that led to whitewashed tombs. And then the second verse that echoes this is also in 1 John, and it's in 1 John 1, and it's, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus will purify us from all unrighteousness. So think about it for a second. If rules and consequences create fear of us and our authority and our power and our kids, are they going to walk in the light? My research says absolutely not. It's causing the dual life. And so you take this first passage, perfect love casts out fear because it has to do with punishment. And you attach it to the second verse. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, then we're having true fellowship. The connotation here is if our kids fear us and won't bring their sin to us, won't bring their mistakes to us, then they're not walking in the light and we're not having true fellowship. Then also that the blood of Jesus isn't purifying them because they're not walking in the light. They're walking in the darkness which leads to blindness, confusion, and death, according to this same passage. And so that's what I'm seeing happen. Our kids are afraid of us. They're afraid of our power, our consequences. 
They're hiding their failures from us. They're leading to a life and they're losing their faith. Why? Because we're not leading like Jesus. We don't look like him. We don't sound like him. We don't dispense grace like him. And we don't handle our kids' failures like him. You're listening to Revive Family, Parenting in the 21st Century with Jeff Schott. More in a moment. Does your child listen to you and do what you ask? Are you tired of the battles? There is hope and a fresh approach to this tiring dilemma. Researcher, counselor, and parenting coach Jeff Schott has done research with 3,500 kids that identifies why kids stop listening and hide in their rooms. The program is called Influential Parenting, and it brings a new perspective to these issues. It's bringing joy and peace back to the parent-child relationship. Get Influential Parenting today at revivefamily.com radio. Welcome back to Revive Family, Parenting in the 21st Century with Jeff Schott. We're talking about leading like the Good Shepherd, leading like Christ. We've talked so much about the lessons he taught and his leading with love. One of my observations about Christ's style is there's a gentleness. There's never a harshness. In my sense, from what I experienced from grandparents and parents, and even my own style, because I was brought up that way, there's a tendency to jump to a conclusion and be very firm and be very tough. And for years, we heard about tough love. Uh, We're not talking about tough love here. We're talking about a gentleness and a love and leading like the Good Shepherd. We're talking about a humility. If you really think about it, think about Jesus for a second. With someone that's endowed with all the power under heaven and earth, can bring down a lightning bolt at a flash of a second, could, you know, levitate off the ground and fly around the earth if he wanted to, um, to think about the humility he had to not use those powers to force a single person to do a single thing against their will is just really humbling for me as a parent. And when I started this journey, looking at that and realizing that it really, you know, it was one of those Buffett yourself, strike yourself in the face moments for me of, you know, I don't look and sound anything like Jesus to my kids. And uh, that was a really humbling thing. I think he did have a gentleness. There were only a couple of times where you saw harshness and it was always with the people that were misleading his sheep, whether it was when he said, you whitewashed tombs or you brood of vipers, or he took the scourge and flipped over the tables of the temple. It was always fighting off those that were misleading the sheep. He wasn't turning that harshness on his sheep. He was that kind, gentle, loving shepherd, that grace-oriented shepherd, that listening shepherd that had 5,000 sinners chasing him around the lake. Sinners didn't run and hide from him. They came to him. They pursued him. They sought him out. Are your kids, when they sin, seeking you out? You mentioned the grace that he expressed And certainly uh, that grace was on display at all times, a mercy that was unearned, undeserved. Uh, That coupled with the general nature of love and gentleness really defined a new way of living. And I think even the disciples had a difficult time understanding that at times, did they not? Well, they spent three and a half years with him. 
Uh, and Jesus took him into one situation after another where you can't talk to the Samaritan woman or you have to take a dip in the mikvah to get in the temple. And they're going, don't make us talk to her. And he's like, takes him in there, makes him talk to her. And then he handles her in this amazingly gentle way. And the whole town comes out to listen. And they're going, wait a minute, I thought this was wrong. And their heart is going, wait a minute, this is oh so right. He's creating a collision between the head and the heart of the disciples constantly. Don't let the leper touch you. You're going to hug me. Then you're going to give me the disease. And then he's healed and he comes back out and and thanks Jesus. And they're going, wait a minute. Um, Oh, my head said this was wrong, but my heart says this is oh so right. He is constantly creating a, a situation where he's teaching them to love the unlovable. And in fact, when I went searching for expectations in the Bible, when I was trying to figure out how to justify continuing in my rules and consequences in my expectation-driven approach of parenting that was costing me my oldest daughter, uh, I, was, I was pretty bent on proving that what I was doing was right. I went searching for expectations when Jesus was just talking to the disciples. When he's talking to the crowds and the Beatitudes, he's got a totally different motive. He throws everything to the extreme to show them that they can't get there through the law. They can't be that perfect. They're going to need the ultimate sacrifice. I mean, if you've looked on a woman lustfully, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand because it's better to do that than lose your soul, who can live up to that? Um, That wasn't an expectation of the disciples. When he's talking just to the disciples, I couldn't find any expectations. When he called them out, he didn't sit them down and say, this is what you have to do if you're going to follow me. Um, in one passage, he did say, follow me and I will make you fishers of men when he's calling two of the disciples. Um, but interestingly enough, who's the active agent in that passage? I will make you. Jesus says, I will make you. So if they don't become fishers of men, who's the failure? Mm-hmm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. When I think about this whole style of leading like Jesus, I think of a management book written some years ago by Ken Blanchard, which was called Lead Like Jesus. And uh, I mean, a summary line from that would be, be the servant to the people you are leading, which was Christ's example. Exactly. He was serving and caring um, and having compassion on all those mistakes and on all those bad decisions. When he looked upon the crowds, he looked upon them, the sinners, with compassion. For he saw that they were sheep without a shepherd, helpless and harassed. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see with our kids today. They've got parents. They've got rules and consequences. And they've got expectations. Mm -hmm. But do they have a shepherd? I'm trying to recall the author of the book. I think his last name was Collins, but there was a book written, oh, probably uh, 10 years ago, eight years ago, called From Good to Great. Oh, yes. And uh, the lesson that I recall from that book was that the most successful CEOs and presidents of companies were humble people. They were very, very powerful people, They could have been quite authoritative in laying down the law, but they were servant leaders. Exactly. I read the book, and I I love— Was it Jim Collins? Good to great. I believe that's correct. Mm -hmm. And the reality is when we lead in such a way that our kids know they're loved, that our kids are met with grace— and with compassion 
for their failures, for their sins. They're willing to talk with us about them. They're willing to listen to us. They're willing to seek our advice. Are your kids doing that right now under rules and consequences? Are they coming to you and saying, man, I think I made a bad decision. I'll never forget once we went down to one rule in our house, which was just love one another, which is the only expectation I could find that Jesus had for the disciples, love God and love one another. In fact, his last teaching time, he concludes with, this is true love, one who will lay down his life. These are my, this is my singular command, love one another. Um, when we went down to that one rule in our house, love, and we tossed out the consequences. I'll never forget the day my daughter followed me down the stairs. The one that could never admit she was wrong would fight and argue and hide and lie to avoid being wrong for fear of the consequence. Um, and she followed me down the stairs and said, Dad, I think I set a bad example for Paul, her little brother. Um, and I'm like, really, this kid that had been so hard and so resistant now was offering up her failure on a platter to me. Um, that's what the sinners were doing with Jesus because he was the good shepherd. He never called himself a great leader, called himself the good shepherd and a shepherd. There are two types of shepherds, ones with a bunch of dogs and a bunch of fences to control the sheep. And there's the shepherd that has the relationship with the sheep. And you can go look at pictures online. I encourage you to look it up. Uh, you can see 500 sheep following one guy down a path with no fences and no dogs because the sheep have that relationship, that safety. They know the shepherd is safe. Rules and consequences don't make us safe. And it's such an amazing picture. And that's what we see with Jesus with 5,000 chasing him around the lake. He was safe. People weren't scared to bring their failures to him. People weren't scared of the consequence he was going to issue because he wasn't going to issue one. Mm -hmm. I think some parents listening today are saying, you have only... One rule in your home? Yeah. Love one another? Well, even Paul summed up all of Romans in Romans 13 with leave no debt outstanding but the debt of love. Because if you do this, you'll fulfill all the commandments. Wait a minute. That can't be right. Why is Jesus saying the same thing at the end of his ministry before, right before the upper room discourse? He's going off to be arrested and then put to death. And he leaves them with, this is my command, love one another. Because that's works. In our house, everything does come back to love. Think about the Ten Commandments. If you love your neighbor, will you steal from them? If you love your wife, will truly love your wife? In a Christ-like way, will you commit adultery? If your kids love you because you lead like the good shepherd, will they honor you? Yeah, it really does come down to love. It really was that simple. And it's worked amazingly well with all of my kids. Love is at the core, but in a competitive culture like ours, sometimes it gets pushed aside to win, to be victorious, to you know define that success by more points than the other guy. Or look at my kid and all he's doing compared to yours. Yeah. And we keep him so busy that, and in, in managed programs, so there's always an adult oversight um, that they never learn any skills for managing conflict or relationships or life at all. And then we send them off to college and we're scared. And so we keep micromanaging them um, because we know they're not ready. Um, that 
that has not been the case with my first two. They both took off, hit the ground running and have done great in college and end up being leaders of other kids, even at student orientation, the very first day on campus, because everybody's so out of sorts and they, they've got it handled and everybody mm -hmm. can see it. Um, in fact, in the first orientation at Lewis and Clark with her counselor, the counselor had a half an hour set aside for her. And after 10 minutes, looked at her and goes, I have no worries about you. There's a lot of kids that are completely out of sorts. Can, can we end our time and you get out of here? And she's like, why are you this way? And my, my daughter shared briefly how we approached her and she goes, ah, no wonder you're so well put together. Um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, it stuck out like an amazing beacon in the, the chaos of the first days on campus, our two daughters. Love one another works. It does. I get it scary though. That's it for this edition of Revive Family, Parenting in the 21st Century with Jeff Schott. We'll return soon with another program designed to help you become a wiser, more effective, more influential parent. Jeff's website is revivefamily.com. Parenting in the 21st Century is produced in association with Faith Radio. Jeff Schott is a pastoral counselor and coach. He is not a licensed health care professional. What you've heard is not a substitute for seeking professional medical or psychological support. Families have issues. There are times when stress levels intensify. You don't know where to turn for help. You want relief, but old parenting techniques aren't working. Where do you find answers? Where can you find relief? You're desperate for new ideas and new insights. Start by visiting revivefamily.com. That's where you'll find resources developed by researcher, counselor, and parenting coach Jeff Schott. Some families struggle with a lack of communication, defiant behavior, and anger issues. The list goes on with bullying, seeming lack of motivation, and withdrawal. Any of those sound familiar? All produce stress, and all are family challenges that do have answers. Visit revivefamily.com to find audio CDs, DVDs, and Jeff's book, Influential Parenting. Revivefamily.com is where you'll find relief from the stresses of parenting. Visit revivefamily.com on your way to becoming a wiser, better parent.